anybody move. Now empty that safe. <laughs> money, money, money. Stop it, stop it, you mean old potato. Quiet, Bo Peep, or your sheep get run over. Help, uh, help us. Oh, no, not my sheep. Somebody do something. Witch for the sky. Oh, no, Sheriff Woody. I'm here to stop you when I bark. How'd you know it was me? Are you gonna come quietly? Can't touch me, Sheriff. I brought my attack dog with a built-in force field. Well, I brought my dinosaur leech force field dog. You're going to jail, Bart. Say goodbye to the wife and tater tots. <laughs> Well, a long time ago. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Father, I ask that you just be with us, Lord. And Father, I also ask that you just speak through me, Lord. God, let it be not the words of, of me or of a church or of a denomination, Lord, but let it be your words, Father. So, Father, we thank you for this time. In your name, amen. amen. Okay. Um, real quick, just spat them out. What were some of your favorite toys growing up? Barbie. Hot Wheels Barbie. Okay. G.I. Joe. Star Wars. Star Wars. He-Man. He-Man. All right. Mar okay. Cool. Cool. <laughs> hula hoop. Hey. Chipmunks love hula hoops, right? Um, okay. So second question, and be honest because you're in a church. Um, raise of hands. Who actually thought that their toys or stuffed animals were really real? And that when you're not looking, they're doing crazy things. Okay? So a couple of us. All right. It happens, right? You just open the door and you're like, nothing. Um, I used to actually think my stuffed animals had feelings and I always felt bad throwing them away. Like, oh, that's sad. Um, okay, so today, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Psalms 139. That's where we're going to be today. Um, Psalms is right smack in the middle of your Bible. If you open it up, chances are you'll hit it. It's right after for the Kings and es um, Esther and all that good stuff. If you hit Proverbs, you've gone too far. So Psalms 139. Oh, I hit Proverbs. Okay, so. Toy Story. Other than the crazy things that they do, like in their little world, they have a pretty simple life, right? Like the crazy things that make up the stories. They have a pretty simple life. I mean, they're toys. They get to spend all day in that room. They can jump off of beds. They can ride the little cars. They can make all these little scenarios. And they do all sorts of cool things. In fact, uh, then we're going to show another clip. It, is, it highlights what their world is really like. So go ahead. Pull my string, the birthday party's today. Okay, everybody, coast is clear. 
ages three and up. It's on my box. Ages three and up. I'm not supposed to be babysitting Princess Drool. <laughs> I don't get it. You uncultured swine. What are you looking at, you hockey puck? Uh, hey, Sarge, have you seen Slinky? Sir, no, sir! Okay, hey, thank you. At ease. Hey, uh, Slinky? Right here, Woody. I'm ready this time. No, Slink. Oh, well, all right. You can be ready if you uh, want. Not, not now, Slink. I got some bad news. Bad news? <laughs> Gather everyone up for a staff meeting and be happy. Got it. Be happy. <laughs> staff meeting, everybody. Snake robot podium duty. Hey, Etch. Draw. Go! Got me again. Etch, you've been working on that draw. Fastest knobs in the West. I uh, got a staff meeting, you guys. Uh, come on, let's go. Now, where is that? Oh. Hey, who moved my doodle pad way over here? Ah! How you doing, Rex? Were you scared? Tell me honestly. I was close to being scared that time. Oh, I'm going for fearsome here, but I just don't feel it. I think I'm just coming off as annoying. <coughs> Ow! Oh, hi, Bo. Hi. I wanted to thank you, Woody, for saving my flock. Oh, hey, it was, uh, nothing. What do you say I get someone else to watch the sheep tonight? <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Remember, I'm just a couple of blocks away. Come on, come on. Smaller toys up front. Okay. So, uh, this universe they're in, they have their own little thing going on. They have their own, I mean, they have staff meetings, right? They... They have, you know, relationships with each other. They do all these sorts of things. They, you know, there's love interests. So these toys are like, they have their own universe. And here's the best part. Whenever Andy comes into the room, they act as if nothing ever happened. So anything that they did, Andy never sees what goes on. And I got to reading, and it reminded me a lot like our relationship with God and how God sees us. And so in Psalms 139, that's where we're going to start. Uh, first is this. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going and my laying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty to attain. Oh, no, wait. God knows everything that we do. Yeah, there's, there's no just laying down whenever he enters the room. He knows everything that you do and have done. Kind of frightening, to be honest with you. Um, he knows your thoughts. He knows your desires. He even knows what you're going to do before you even think it. He knows everything. For some of us, that can be a scary thought. Because God knows what you did a couple years ago. God knows what you did last week. God knows what you did last night. And God knows what you did this morning before you came to church. And it can make some of us nervous. 
I was first kind of introduced to this thought, and not really, I mean, I always kind of knew growing up. I was raised in, in church and in God, and I always knew that God knew everything and was always watching me. But it never really struck me. It never really, like, hit me until one day I was at, um, like, church. It was for kids. And uh, it was one day after church. I was, uh, you know, rambunctious, I guess that's what they call it. And so, you know, I'm excited just to, to get out and play with my friends. So as soon as the, it was over, church was over, we go out, we're playing, we're running around, we're doing our thing, all right? And I feel this, like, magnetic pull on my eyes. It is so strong, I couldn't deny it. And it's pulling me, and in the corner, I see a pile of sticks. I turn my body, and I start heading for the sticks, and I extend my hand as I get closer, and as soon as my hand grabs that stick, the stick, the stick ceases to be a stick and becomes the sword of Grayskull. Okay? Now, that's cool in itself, right? But the best thing is when your friend grabs the stick. And when you have two boys with two sticks, what do you have? An epic sword fight. And so it was on. And we had it. We were going back and forth. We were doing our hoo-hoos, our ha-has, and we're going. And, you know, every once in a while, you're like, ow, my knuckle. But it, it finally gets to the point where well, some, one of us has to die. And for some reason, I always liked being the one that died because I get to be really dramatic and go, oh, oh, and do the last breath and whatever. And so as we're getting ready to that, I see my friend just drop his stick, and his eyes are as big as the moon, and he's freaking out. And I'm like, what's going on? I turn around, and there right behind me is our teacher. And of course, like any good teacher, she grabs us, takes us to her office, and says, that's dangerous, oh my God, you could have stabbed his eye out or something, you know, like what teachers do. But then she said something to me that I'm like, that, that stuck with me. It, it still sticks with me today. She said, don't you guys know that God is watching you? And I'm like, huh, yes. But then I started thinking, well, if he's, God is sitting there watching my epic sword fight, then he's also seeing the stuff that I'm doing behind my parents' back. He's seeing what type of kid I am at school, and he's also seeing the torturous things that I'm doing to my sister daily. And so as I start thinking about these things, I had this feeling that, wow, I must be a huge disappointment to God. I, if he knows it all, I mean, I can't trick him like I tr trick my parents. I must be a huge disappointment to him. In fact, he's probably not even watching me anymore because I've blown it. And so when I look at a... At a, at a um, Scripture like this, I look at Psalms 139, and it talks about the greatness of God watching us and seeing everything that we do. I look at that, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Is that really a good thing, that God is watching everything that we do? And then I look, well, who, who in their right mind would write something like that? And I look at the author. It's David. And I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, he's the guy after God's own heart. And here's another thing I got in school. I felt like I could never measure up to that guy. I always felt like church always painted him as the model for little boys. You gotta have faith. He's the one that killed the giant. He's the one that's the man after God's own heart. Have faith. Just gotta have faith like David. Be a good little boy. Here's the thing. Not only did I feel like I'll never measure up to that guy, but I also felt that I really didn't wanna be that guy. Because 
Any flannel graph representation I ever saw of him, the dude was always wearing a dress, okay? <laughs> always wearing a dress. I told you, I grew, up in, I, well, I grew up in the 80s. I had heroes like Conan and He-Man, and so I wanted to fight with a sword. David had a sling, okay? I listened to, to music like, that my parents listened to, like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and all that kind of stuff. And so growing up, I'm like, man, if I'm ever in a band, I'm never choosing the harp. So, so not only did I feel like I could never measure up to that guy, I really didn't want to be like him. And so as years went on, you know, I, I always thank God for this, but he blessed me with, with just a desire at a young age to want to read the Bible, to read things for myself. And so I started doing that. And I started reading about David and his life. And there are some things in there that are absolutely shocking that I say, where was that in Sunday school? No one pointed that out. Okay, so as I started to read, I started thinking, huh, maybe I'm more like him than I thought. Because I saw that David struggled with something that I will be bold enough to say that we all kind of struggle with on one form or another. He struggled with self-worth. Where to put it? Now, self-worth, excuse me, self-worth, usually when you're born, not usually, but most of the time. When you're born, you're born with a full amount of self-worth because your parents go nuts over everything you do. Okay, just this last week, my daughter started peeing in the toilet and we thought we just, it was like the best celebration in our house. Okay, we were clapping, we were hollering, and she's just like, oh my God, I know, it's crazy. Um, so her self-worth is like, that's all I gotta do. Like, it's, it's really huge. We don't really start losing our self-worth until we enter like kindergarten when we realize that there's another kid that doesn't want to play with us or doesn't want to share with us. And we start looking at ourselves like thinking, well, what did I do? Oh, I'm not worth enough to play with him or go do this or the first time you realize you weren't invited to a sleepover. And because we start, that's when we start losing it, we then start to scramble to replace it, to find ways of, of giving back our self-worth. And sometimes it's okay things. A lot of times it's bad things. And most of the time, it's things that just flat out waste our time that we shouldn't even have begun to do. We shouldn't even have begun to have done it anyways. And so when we see that, that David is struggling with self-worth, I want to look at some of these stories uh, about the author of Psalms 139, this man after God's own heart. And we're gonna, I'm just going to say this scripture. We're not going to really read it, but write it down, and I encourage you, look it up when you get home. Um, see these stories for yourself, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to kind of gloss over them. So we're going to start with the most famous story, David versus Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Um, at this time, Israel was at war with the Philistines, okay? And on this particular battle, you've got one side of Israel camped out and another side with uh, the Philistines camped out. And in the middle, you've got this valley. And so what, Phil what the Philistines had, what the Israelites didn't have, is they had this giant of a man named Goliath. And so for 40 days, this man will come out and taunt the nation of Israel. Not just the nation, but the soldiers, and they'll ta he taunts God. Okay, for 40 days this went on. And as Saul is walking down, walking along the tents, Saul the king, and he sees that his men are just frightened of this man, he, and, you know, the constant mockery, you know, it's like psychological warfare, he realizes something that must be done. I'm not going to do it because I'm the king, and that's a freaking giant. But what I'm going to do is 
is I'm going to offer up a reward. And so he gathers the men together and he stands up and he says, obviously this can't go on. So I'm going to offer to any of you, if you kill the giant, you will get money. You will get to marry one of my daughters. You'll get to be into the royal family. And you'll never have to pay taxes again. That's a good deal, right? So what Saul didn't know was that there was a boy in the crowd that day. And that boy was there. He was delivering a care packages to his brothers who were soldiers, okay? So he's there and he hears what's going on. He hears this reward that is given to Saul or given that Saul is given to the people and his will start going. The boy was obviously David and his will start going in his head. He starts to think, wow, that's a really good deal. So he goes up to, he goes up to some more soldiers. He goes, hey, I just got to hear this one more time. Now, now, what will the man get for who kills Goliath? Well, you know, he's going to get money. He's going to get a chance to be in the royal family, and he's never going to pay taxes again. David's like, well, okay, wow. All right. He hears it, and he goes up again, and he says, hey, just one more time, uh, again, what does a man get? And, and you know, who is this, this giant that's mocking God? David gets a little holy, but he asks again, and we clearly see his motives. See, in Sunday school, I just always thought that David just walked into the camp and was like, I'm here to avenge the Lord. Give me some rocks. Okay? His motives had nothing to do with that. The dude was only thinking about money, sex, and fame, popularity. And it makes sense. Let me tell you why. Because David is the least of his brothers. He's a shepherd. When it comes time for the, for the inheritance to come down, he would have gotten very little, if any. He probably would have had to sell himself into slavery just to, just to survive. So he's thinking, dude, this is my shot. This is my one opportunity that I can actually make something of myself. So I'm going to do it. Of course, you know, God's with him. God does it. And he ends up killing the giant. But David put his self-worth not in being confident in who he was as a shepherd, but of what he can be, popularity. Okay? Now, when I say popularity, probably a lot of you are like thinking, oh, yeah, that's a high school problem. I'm glad I don't have to deal with that no more. <laughs> yeah, it is. But it follows us. It might be called a different name, but it follows us into the workplace. It follows us into social circles or the blocks you live on or even in churches it follows us. But that idea, that idea that we all want to be something and we want to be a part of something, we don't want to be an outsider, it follows us. And David is putting his self-worth in that. Well, you guys know the story. He kills Goliath. And here's another thing they don't teach you in Sunday school. Do you know that guy just went up and cut Goliath's head right off after he hit him with the rock? Sunday school, they just make it, make it look like he was knocked out. In the Bible, he goes up and I got his head. And then he keeps it. Weird. Um, um, so the next story uh, in 1 Samuel 25 um, David, this is after years have gone by since the Goliath battle, and he's on the run from Saul because, you know, Saul sees him as a threat to his kingdom. And so he and his men are sitting on this guy's land. This, this land belongs to a man named Nabal. And so as he's sitting on this land, he tells his men, do not take a thing from this man. Don't, don't take nothing from Nabal. Don't take his goats, his sheep, or just staying on his land to, to, to live, to like sleep. So he stayed there for a while. Now, it was kind of, a, a kind of a cool situation because, you know, Nabal, there were bandits and robbers that would come and take things, but because this army of David was sitting on this guy's land, robbers and bandits stayed away. 
And so David did the respectful thing and didn't take a thing. So, well, a time came where David was like, hey, look, we've done the honorable thing. We, we need something. So he sends men to go and talk to Nabal. He says, look, just ask for a couple goats because we, we need it. And so the men go, they go to Nabal and they say, hey, can we have just a couple goats or sheep? And, you know, we've done the honorable thing. We've protected you all this time. We've never taken a thing. But, and we're asking, you know, can we have something? Because we need it. Nabal says, no. Not just no, but you can tell that David, he's a runaway slave. Okay? The men take that information, go back to David, and they say, David, he says no, and he called you a runaway slave. Now, I don't know where you guys all grew up, but if someone calls you a runaway slave, that's fighting words. Okay? It's that, it's that moment, if you can remember fights in high school or whatever, if you can remember that moment when there's a crowd of people around you and one person says something to another and then that crowd behind you erupts and goes, oh, no, he didn't just do that. You need to do something. And because David put his self-worth into what other people think, he tells his men, grab your swords because we're going to go kill every single living people in Nabal's land. He's just going to straight up murder them because they didn't, he called them a name. So he takes his, his army and he starts marching towards uh, Nabal's house. And if it wasn't for the wisdom of Abigail, his wife, Nabal's wife, who comes out, gets on her knees and starts saying, oh, Lord, we are sorry. I am sorry. Nabal doesn't know what he's doing. I'm sorry. Please don't kill us. Please, please. We'll be, it'll be fine. Giving, giving David back his, you know, his ego, giving back his self-respect. David almost lost it. He didn't, but he almost lost it because he put his self-worth into what? Others think. He loses it next in 2 Samuel 11, another famous story, uh, David and Bathsheba. David is now king and has his palace and he has his kingdom and he's got far more than what Nabal ever had. And so he's on his, kingdom, uh, on his, on his palace and he's walking around and he sees a woman bathing. And so he sees her and he doesn't do the, oh my gosh. He does the, oh my gosh, and then like, keep staring. And so the staring continues to wanting. Then the wanting goes into getting, and the getting goes into pregnancy. Now, here's the thing. Bathsheba was a married woman. Well, so was David, because, because David put his self-worth in sex, because his other wives wasn't doing it. Wives wasn't doing it for him. He had to have this one girl he now run the risk of him being executed and her being executed because she was married. It was all done in secret. And because Jewish law states that if you break that covenant of marriage, you're to be killed. Well, David's like, well, I'm the king, so that's not going to happen. Um, so he comes up with a, with a plan. And to be honest with you, it's kind of a good idea if you're in this situation. But... <laughs> But he, what he d decides to do is he, he, he decides, okay, I'm going to bring your husband back from the war, and you're going to go off and do what married couples do, and we'll just say that it's his baby, and then no harm, no foul. Everything will be okay. And so when David does this plan, what he didn't account for was this man, Uriah, who was the, the husband. Uriah was just a good guy. And he says, look, I cannot leave my brothers, the men that I've been side by side with fighting and bleeding and hurting with, I can't leave them to go with my family knowing that they can't come with me. So no, I, I will wait to go home 
when we can all go home to when the fighting is done. And so David decides, well, that plan didn't work. So he gets a pen and paper, and the same hand that wrote Psalms 139 is the same hand that wrote Uriah's death warrant. Because what he does is that he orders Uriah to go to the, he, he orders Uriah to go to the, where the fighting is the fiercest, knowing that he was going to die. David did that. In a sense, he committed murder. He lost it. And, and you know what's funny? Is this issue of sexual immorality that David has, because he, his kids, his own sons, see how promiscuous he was with this, they have no sexual morals at all. And will eventually his own sons, it even gets worse. I don't know, we'll go into it today, but <laughs> it's definitely not a Sunday school lesson. But it gets worse, and eventually it leads to his own sons dying. Okay? So that one action caused so much hurt, so much destruction amongst him and his own family. All right, uh, last one. 2 Samuel 24. This is where David, towards the end of his life, and he, you would think this is the point where he's like the most wise, right? Where he's got all the wisdom and he's, he's old and like, I've lived it all. I've made so many mistakes in my life. I just, you know, I want to end good. <laughs> and so at the end of his life, he decides, and it's probably, I mean, I can picture it, right? He's sitting on the balcony of his palace, and he's sitting there, and he's just like, man, look where I've come from. Look where I came. I, I was this little shepherd's boy that was probably going to die really early, probably not going to, to get a thing. Look where I've come from. Now I'm the king of Israel. I own all this. Wow. And that's in the, it's an accomplishment, right? But he takes it one step too far. He then says... I want to see just how many people I have, how many soldiers do I have that are ready and willing to fight with me right now? If I say I want them to fight, will they go? So he tells his men, go and count the men. His, the, the advisors say, David, I don't know if you want to do that. I don't know if that's a good idea because what they're thinking about, they're going back to Exodus 30, 12, where God says, if you count something, that means you own it. You're counting these men, you don't own these people. I own these people. And so by David saying, no, I'm going to count them, he is taking ownership away from God. And God says, if you do that, it, it, there is nothing wrong with counting the people if God says, count them. But if God says, don't count them, then you are in a sense stealing from God. And God says, there's consequences for this. If you do this, there's consequences. And his advisors warn him, you don't want to do this thing, David. Don't count the men. David says, hmm, I'm the king do what I want. Because David put his self-worth into what he's accomplished, into his work, into his job, he sends out the men, they go and count, and they come back, that he has 1,300,000 men ready to fight with him. Impressive. What's really neat, or not neat, but interesting, is that when David hears this number, you have 1,300,000 men ready to fight, he instantly realized, what evil thing have I done? I should not have done this. And he starts to repent, but it's too late. There's consequences for every action. Am I right? So an angel comes to David and says, look, you've got three choices. You've disobeyed God. Here are your three choices. One, you can spend the next three years with famine. You're going to lose food. It's going to be rough. 
okay? Three years. Two, second option, you could spend the next three months on the run from your enemies, meaning you might lose the palace, but it's for three months they'll be chasing you around. Three, you can spend the next three days having a very bad plague come on to the, world, come on to the people. And so David, again, because he puts his self-worth in his work, says, well, I don't want to lose the food. We need the food. And if I lose the food, people are going to die. I'm going to lose the people. So I don't want to do that. I also do not want to be on the run because that means I'm not the king and I'm going to lose my house. So I don't really want to do that. So I'll take the plague. So he takes the plague for three days. The plague is so severe that 70,000 people died of this plague. It got to be so severe that God actually didn't let it the whole three days go by. He stops it and says, David, I can't believe you made this choice. You made it worse, okay? He actually stops it before the three days even stop. He says, what have you done? You've done this evil thing. This is at the end of David's life when you're supposed to like go out with a bang, right? He did, just very badly. 70,000 people died. And so when I read about this author, when I read about David, I start to look at and think, I'm actually a better person than him. I'm actually better than David. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just joking. But, but it's that idea that this man did not live a holy life. Not at all. So let's continue in Psalms 139 and see um, where David is coming from now. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, your right hand will hold me fast. I'm sorry. Even if there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will, will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, you, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in the book before one of them came to be. So, in this, in this passage, what is God, I'm sorry, what is David saying about God? He's saying three things. One, he's saying you cannot, you can't hide from God because he is always watching. Okay? Number two, no escaping God because he is everywhere, okay? Look, if we were serving some pagan god that ran heaven on a, on a point system, I would end my lesson here and say, okay, guys, know that he's watching, know that he knows. Shape up, or you're not gonna go to heaven. Done, okay? But we don't serve that god. Because here's the next thing that David is saying about God. Number three, there is no running away because God can't leave me alone. Church, understand that you have a God that cannot and will not leave you alone. He is always there. So why are we so special? Who are we 
to God, that he can't leave us alone? Well, first off, we are his craftsmanship or his poem, okay? Don't get hung up on the Sunday school, David, because there's a reason why God put those stories in the Bible. It was almost as if God is saying, look, David was not just a man after my own heart, but David was a man who needed my heart. Don't get hung up on that Sunday school, David. Read his, his, his failures and know that we can relate. The second thing is we are also his child. God formed the universe out of nothing. He put planets. He put, he, he put things into orbit. He created the sun and the suns that we have that we can't even see or know. He made universes that we can't even see from here. He made all that. He, he told the waters where to stop, and he made the mountains rise. That God calls you sons and daughters. One of the most intimate things you can say to somebody. He didn't call you people. He didn't call you subjects. He calls you sons and daughters. That God. The next thing he also calls us. He calls us his greatest investment. His greatest investment. Do you guys know what God paid for you? I mean, like really grasp it. What God paid for you. I started thinking in my life, is there anything that I've really gone all in on, like really sacrificed everything for? And I started thinking, no, I don't think really there is. I mean, I've gone all in on poker games, but that's like a $5 buy-in, so it's like, whatever. Okay. But there really is nothing I've gone all in on. But God went all in on you. All in on you. I can imagine David at the end of his life we're sitting in a room, in a dark room, sitting with the candle as it's flickering and his hands are, are scarred up and old and wrinkled from battles and life and whatnot. And as he's writing Psalms 139 and he gets to verse 10, he says, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. I, I just, guessing, but I think that's when he got it. I think that's when he really like, wow, I, I got it. I see the ultimate character of God. Ellie, my daughter, she's really into climbing. Okay, it's kind of a bummer for me and Jenny because she's just everywhere, right? She will run and see like a slide, like especially this slide outside. She'll see it and she'll just jet for it. She'll go right to the stairs, stairs and just climb it. And so when she wants to climb certain things as a father, some of you guys probably know this, but you have to adopt this like position of like one hand here, another hand here, and you have to guide her up the stairs. Now, here's the thing. She doesn't say, hey, Dad, help me up the stairs. Or she doesn't point and say, hey, help me up the stairs in her baby way. But she just goes for it. She doesn't even look back. She doesn't even see if I'm there. But I'm there. I don't know the amount of failure or messes that David made in his life. But we do know that he got it. He says, God, you know the mess that I've made, the mess of my life you've known. I've climbed this ladder all wrong. My form is wrong. But God, you're still there for me. When I go through life, I know that your left hand is there guiding me and your right hand is on the side. I'm climbing everything wrong, Lord, but you're still there. Now, that left hand, this one, it's in a scary place because it's under the most disgusting, smelly, squishy, thing that has ever been put on this earth, right? 
It's nasty. I don't know, as parents, I, I know my wife has lost you know, the gag reflex of the smell, but I still haven't. It's hard, it's hard for me. Um, but it's in a scary place, right? But I don't care because I'm dad. I'm going to make sure she's safe. I'm not going to sit there and yell at her and say, oh, your form is all wrong. You missed a step or you fell. No, my first priority thing is to make sure she's safe because I'm dad. That's what dads do. We are God's poem. We are God's child. And we are his greatest investment. Now, if I were you, meaning if I was sitting in the audience listening to me speak, my next question would be, that's great, but why do we still live in hell? Why do I still lose loved ones to cancer? Why do I have no money to buy groceries? Why did that abuse happen to me? And well, my answer would be, that's a good question. I don't really have an answer for that. And really, this side of heaven, you might not ever get a satisfied answer. But I have a thought, and it will continue in Psalms. 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me. You who are bloodthirsty, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And, ab and abhor, abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. You see, as David's writing these things, he's He's finally gotten to that part where he says, God, but there's still bad things happening. Why is this happening? See, David is just like you. Just because he's a man that wrote Bible doesn't mean that he didn't think the same way you did. Why is this happening, God? How come the wicked, why can't just everything evil in this world just go away? See, God is still there. And this is my thought. God is still there when life sucks. God is still there when life is unfair. I know this is the Christian cop-out answer. I get that. But to be honest with you, this is all we got. Okay? From the very beginning, God has said, look, you will live in a jacked-up, sinful world. I am sorry that wasn't my first plan. But know that I am here with you. I am walking with you. When, that, when, when, when you're crying and you're grieving, I am crying and grieving right next to you. I will walk you through your troubles. Look, I can't get rid of sin because if I get rid of sin, I get rid of choice. And if I get rid of choice, then I get rid of love. And I'm not going to make you into a robot. It's an ultimate freedom. But I'm going to walk, with you, walk you through this. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to stand like that parent and guide you, but I'm not going to stop you. But I'm going to guide you. A couple weeks ago, we went on a family vacation, and we went to this place where there was just tons of chickens. And my daughter, she loves critters. I blame Disney because 
everything she watches, animals talk, and they get into adventures with her. And I think that's what she thinks is going to happen when she catches one. God forbid she actually really catch a, ki- a chicken, because it's going to be rough, right? Well, we're there. We see these chickens. And I'm encouraging her. I, I'm loving it, because she'll sit there. She'll clap. She'll point. She'll run after them. She'll stop. She'll clap. She'll point. She wants these little critters. And so I'm just sitting there, and we're laughing, and we're enjoying it. And later on in the trip, again, she just sees a critter. She'll just jet for it. She won't ask again. She's not a perfect child, so she'll just jet. And so at one point on this one particular hike, she sees something, and we don't even see it. She's got eyes for animals. She sees something, and she just goes for it. And as she's running, her little legs go a little bit too fast than the way she can afford and she falls. And she falls right on the, the cement or the pavement. It was, it was a rough pavement, too. It wasn't like a smooth pavement. It was one of those where the little rocks were really jaggedy. And praise God, she didn't fall on her face. She fell on her knees. But what happened is it just straight up cut her knees open. Okay? And, you know, she's screaming. She's hollering. And we're picking her up. And we're soothing her. And we're saying, it's okay. It's okay. We go and we, we clean her up, and as we're cleaning her up, she's screaming even more, which that could be said something for, that's a whole other lesson, right? Um, and so, and she does that, she finally settles down, and we set her down, and we're walking on this hike again, and she sees something else, and she goes for it. And sure enough, she falls again, making her wounds even worse, okay? Again, more blood, more screaming. I mean, she fell so much on this vacation, and it was sad because every time she would be looking at an animal thing, this is the best thing in my life. I can't believe it. This is so fun. I'm enjoying this. To all of a sudden falling and her looking at me and Jenny and saying, why is this happening to me? Why does this keep happening? I mean, I can say to her, it's because you're running. Do not run, you know. But she's not going to understand that. All I can do, all me and Jenny can do is pick her up and hold her and say, I am sorry. It's okay. It's okay. On one particular hike um, we were going on, um, I don't know, after maybe the third or fourth time she fell, I finally, like, got her, and she fell asleep. She just was like, I'm done. I fell, she fell right asleep in my arms. And so for the rest of this hike, I just held her. She finally had the peace that we all want when we're in God's arms. When we're experiencing those pains, God will give us those peace if we ask for it. Lord, give us those peace in those hurting times. When those things happen to us, we have to remember that God is right there with you, ready to give you that peace. Continuing on in verse 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offense, offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. David says, God knows everything about you. But at the end, you got to repent. Because you can't just live this life like, oh, well, God knows everything. He's going to love me. Yeah, he'll love you. But you got to repent. You got to accept Jesus. You got to accept God's grace. And in that, in that, in accepting that grace, we have to daily say, Lord, see if there's anything wrong with me and take it out because we're in a fallen world. Things might come into our heads that we're not even controlling. Things might happen in our life that we have no control over. But we have to repent. Okay, you got that last clip? 
go ahead and show it. If only you could see how much Andy misses you. Toolbox off me. Oh, come on, Buzz. I. Buzz, I can't do this without you. I need your help. I can't help. I can't help anyone. Well, sure you can, Buzz. You can get me out of here. And then I'll get that rocket off you, and we'll make a break for Andy's house. Andy's house, Sid's house. What's the difference? Oh, Buzz, you've had a big fall. You... You must not be thinking clearly. No, Woody. For the first time, I am thinking clearly. You were right all along. I'm not a space ranger. I'm just a toy, a stupid, little, insignificant toy. Whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a, a space ranger. Yeah, right. No, it is. Look, over in that house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. But why would Andy want me? Why would Andy want you? Look at you! You're a Buzz Lightyear! Any other toy would give up his moving parts just to be you. You've got wings! You glow in the dark! You talk! Your helmet does that, that, that whoosh thing! You are a cool toy! As a matter of fact, you're too cool. I mean... I mean, what chance does a toy like me have against a Buzz Lightyear action figure? All I can do is... There's a snake in my boots! Why would Andy ever want to play with me when he's got you? I'm the one that should be strapped to that rocket. Of the band come on up and the ushers. Just like David, toys also deal with self-worth. And so as they're as Buzz is realizing that he's just not a space ranger, what he's telling him, look, you need to put your worth in Andy because he loves you. Church, we need to put our worth in God because he loves you. That's what David is saying through 139. He's saying, look, God knows all your business. And he loves you. He knows, everything that, he knows everything that we do and still loves us. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't come down and say, hey, look, okay, straighten up, fix that area in your life, and then I will die for you. No, God saw you in your worst possible moment and says, I'm going to die for you. You. 
crap and all, God delights in us. And that is what we need to put ourselves worth. When, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to work, when you go to school, when you go anywhere, walk in that confidence. Not because of who you are, but because of whose you are. That's where you put ourself, that's where you put your self-confidence. That's where we put our self-worth, sorry. So, it's kind of an embarrassing thing, but whatever. One thing you guys probably don't know about me is that I collect things. In particular, I collect action figures. They're not toys, they're action figures, okay? And I don't sit around at home and play with them, okay? They're, they're in their cases and they're nice. And some of them are worth quite a bit of money. But there's a rule when it comes to, to that sort of stuff. Um, even antiquities or, or whatever. There's a rule to that. And the rule is this, that something is as only as worth as much as someone's willing to pay for it. So my last question to you is what did God pay for you? Let's pay, pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have, that you know our business and that you still love us that you know our crap and you still love us and that you're still with us, God. Yes, it is great to know that you know everything. What we, what we can look at this and, and see as a message of, of making us nervous that you see everything actually is a message of encouragement. Father, you died while we were sinners. You chose to save us when we were sinners. God, I thank you for that. So, Father, be with the church this week, Father. Remind them on where we should put our self-worth. As we go about our lives, know, remind us that we are sons and daughters of you, that we belong to you. And so, Father, we thank you. In your name, amen.